Welcome to Therapeutic Perspective Podcast. Our mission is to bring you current mental health information directly relevant to your clinical practice through engaging interviews with varied specialty experts. My name is Shonda Morales. As a licensed clinical social worker in private practice in the Northeast for over two decades, I know how important continuing education is, not only for professional growth and burnout prevention, but for our own personal self-care and sense of empowerment as well. Therapeutic Perspective is a continuing education provider, so stay tuned until the end of the show to learn how you can obtain NBCC continuing education credit hours for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Therapeutic Perspective Podcast. I am here today with Eva Janata, who helps women defy the status quo amplify our influence, and expand our wealth and power with thought leadership. Eva and the Medusa Media Group team train and advise authors, speakers, coaches, and consultants to generate strong leads and grow engaged audiences by publishing their best thinking. She works with women in her program's micro-marketing method and exponential audience and privately. Eva lives on indigenous ancestral land in Phoenix, Arizona, and I'm going to throw that back to her so she can pronounce the, the lands that she lives on. Go ahead, Eva. Excellent. Hi. Thank you, Shonda. Thank you. Yes, it's great to be here. And so I live on Odom Jewid, Akamel Odom, and Hohokam ancestral lands in Phoenix, Arizona. Nice. Thank you so much for being here. I'm very excited to dive in. Uh, I have been following Eva's work for a, a bit of time now, and I'm always amazed at her creativity and innovation. So I'm really excited that we have you on today. So Thank let's you. dive in and you tell us, sure, tell us a little bit about who you are. I introduced you a bit, but really mostly the why behind your work. Yes. So why thought leadership? So back in the day, I began as a kind of marketing generalist for women entrepreneurs. And, you know, anyone listening to this can probably relate to the advice that we get to niche down, niche down, niche down. And I also received that advice and, and I found it very hard to follow at first. And I felt very frustrated by that. I was like, ah, I know I'm supposed to have a niche, but like, I, I don't want to just pick one out of a hat and it's not yet clear to me what my niche is. So if anyone listening is in that position, um, I relate. And uh, the quote unquote solution is to let it take its time. It was my experience. And so over time, I recognized that really what I'm most lit up and excited about is what we call thought leadership. In other mm -hmm. words, helping women in particular to translate what's between their ears all the wisdom, experience, insights, and strong opinions, and put that out into the world in a way that it can impact others, influence others, help people make positive changes, and ultimately help the woman herself grow her authority and become recognized for what she does so that she can build her power, build more wealth, and use that wealth to influence the change that she wants to see. And so I wended my way from marketing, broadly speaking, to thought leadership specifically. And why I think that's so important is, you know, for really for centuries, the majority of authority figures on planet Earth have been men. And in particular, over the past 500-ish years in the Western world, white men specifically. And I think anyone can agree that that is not a balanced type of leadership, a balanced, um, yeah, really just leadership and authority and influence and decision-making in our mm -hmm. world. And so I'm really on a mission to even those scales, I'd like to see women in equal, if not more than um, equal positions of authority and influence, given that we're slightly over half the global population. And a really critical part of establishing ourselves as authorities is having the quote unquote receipts, having produced work that people can reference, consume, learn from, et cetera. 
I love that. You are speaking my language. Okay. (laughs) I love that. So thought leadership, you're telling us what that is. And, you know, as you're talking, it's becoming clear to me why this could be really valuable and important for mental health professionals, for therapists. So talk more about that. Yeah. So I think about, you know, if anyone's shopping for a professional, right? And sometimes when someone's shopping for, quote unquote, shopping for mental health support or therapy or counseling, you know, some people, they know already exactly what they're looking for, what kind of therapeutic medium or mode that they want. They might be bound by geography sometimes. So there are some filters that help us, might help us narrow a pool of therapists that if we're looking for that kind of service. And if there are a handful of options on the table for you, you know, think about, if you're thinking about embarking on a relationship with someone that's so deeply personal and so mm-hmm. transformative for your life. I mean, that's a really intimate relationship. And you can only tell so much from someone by their website, their headshot, even a good referral. But if you go to their website and you see written materials, if you can listen to their podcast, if you can watch a video of them speaking about why they're in therapy or the transformation of one of their clients, all of that content is a chance for you to enter their world before you're in the vulnerable position of sitting across from them on a sofa. It's a Mm. chance for you to understand what's their perspective, what's their tone, what kind of language do they use? Do I feel comfortable with this? Does this resonate with me? And so, you know, I think about, you know, if I'm, if I'm comparing, if I imagine myself comparing two counselors and one of their, you know, they both have equally beautifully designed websites with lovely imagery, clear information, and then one has a blog and the other does not, Mm. I feel much more comfortable and much more like I can get to know the therapist whose blog posts I can read, who I can learn from in advance of walking in their door than the one that doesn't offer me that entry point. So that's one, you know, just from a lead generation and client generation side, that's one reason why thought leadership can be so powerful for mental health professionals. And then on the other, the other side of it is in terms of building their profile, their platform as a mental health leader, thought leader, expert authority that also helps them to get to that stage by producing their thinking and putting it out there in the world for their colleagues, um, collaborators, anyone else to take a look at and learn from. Right, right. And so much of what you said, um, I wanted to kind of dive back into a little bit. And so it's it's resonating with me um, in particular because I, um, I've been a therapist for 25 years or so now. And uh, mostly now in coaching rather than therapy and, you know, other aspects of mm. that. Um, so I haven't been looking for new therapy referrals for a really long time. And once in a while, I'll open up a few s- slots. Um, and, and so mostly it's been word of mouth. But what I find is since I've done this kind of um, niching, but also more so putting myself out there with different content and letting people get to know who I am and my approach and what I believe, I get the most perfect clients for me. You know, like you're saying, like these, they just like the perfect fit people show up and I am like, wow, I am loving these people who show up and say, Hey, will you work with me? Um, and it's kind of amazing. Right. But it, but it makes sense. Of course it, it, um, but it didn't, it wasn't necessarily intentional in that regard. So, um, Mm. but I guess what I'm just saying is it, you know, it really, um, I'm really feeling what you're saying and what you're putting out there because it's, it's, uh, it's worked for me and that's definitely, how it feels and how amazing is that when you're just kind of you're sharing what you are you know what you feel strongly about what your expertise is like you're saying your thought leadership and then people show up because they are attracted to that and it's the exact people you want to interact with yeah and i really am glad you shared that experience shonda because you're getting at the the word that comes to mind for me is the word magnetic and Mm. you know you've There's lots of information about thought leadership round about the internet. And I really specialize in what I call magnetic thought leadership, which does exactly what you're saying. It attracts the right fit people and it gently repels the people that just aren't the right fit. And when you are at that point 
and it sounds like you've gotten there yourself, it does kind of feel like magic. You're like, wow, how did, how did they know? They're, they're so perfect for me. <laughs> and that's a really fun experience to have. And if you reverse engineer from getting to that point, you can usually see the trail of breadcrumbs of the things that you did, the ways that you let yourself be authentic and out there and forthright and how that has done the work for you of bringing in your right fit clients. Right. And and when you niche down like you're talking about, which I think absolutely I agree with you, takes time to figure out often what that means, what that looks like, who we want to work with and so forth. Um, but when you do, then you're still referable. You, that's, you know, Eva's the person who does magnetic thought leadership. That's, you know, she's the, she's the one. Um, so they know who they can refer to. And then it just becomes easier that way too. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Okay, awesome. So how so we talked about how mental health professionals might benefit from thought leadership in, in these ways that we're talking about now, right? Um, and I'm just imagining, my goodness, yeah. we've gone to school. We, you know, we therapists, we mental health professionals have gone to school. We have this this um, specialties often expertise areas of expertise, and um, I think sometimes we take it for granted, as probably most of us do, because it's just your information that you know and you've been working with and honing over so many years that you're like. Oh yeah, I am kind of an expert in that, and um, you know, and how let, let's just bring that up for a moment, like how maybe how difficult it is, especially for women to own expertise. Can we? Do you mm. want to speak to that at all? Yeah, I think there's two aspects of this that that are important, and I'm glad you brought this up, Shonda. And so, on the one hand, it's like yeah, it's so familiar to you that you get into this place where that what I call the curse of knowledge, where it's like. It's what you do and how it works is so obvious that you forget that other people don't get it the way you get mm, it. Yes. And so something I coach my clients to do when we're working on their thought leadership is to be so focused and clear in their communication, not because they're talking down to anybody, but because to make sure that they're not making any logical leaps in their thought leadership because they're so close to the information that their potential prospects or their audience would not be able to make that same leap. So one part Mm -hmm. of it is like, yeah, this sort of, you get so familiar with something that you forget that other people aren't on the same page. And some, you know, that can also happen to us when we're in our zone of genius, or actually I prefer to call it your zone of joy, which is just this innate ability you have to really understand something or to have a skill set that comes so naturally to you that it feels effortless. And I think to your point about maybe women struggling with this in particular, if something is effortless to you, it might feel like it's not quote unquote worth being Mm. compensated very highly for, Mm -hmm. or you might devalue its impact on others because it's so obvious in your own psyche. And so, yeah, I don't know if you want to share some of your own experiences with that or just stories that you've heard, but that is certainly a dynamic that that many women thought leaders struggle with. Yeah. Well, I mean, personally, I can I can attest to some of that, you know, having to work through that mindset, those blocks that show up um, and all of the above of what you just said. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's partly sometimes it's our innate abilities that feel too obvious to be, quote unquote, worth selling, to put it plainly, or it's, you know, the education we've received and all, and how, um, how practiced we are, you know, you spend years practicing a skill set. of course you're, bec- you become brilliant at it and it's, but it's so incremental for you that it might just f- ultimately feel kind of effortless. I believe it was the great graphic designer, Paula Shear, who, um, I think the story goes that she was working with somebody and they, on a logo and she kind of like sketched them a logo And the person wanted to pay her for her time. And they said, okay, great. Like, how long did it take you to create our logo? (laughs) And she said, it took me 15 minutes and 20 years. Right. There you go. Yep. Yes, definitely. Exactly. Nail on the head for sure. Yes. Uh, So there's the piece of us getting straight with ourselves and recognizing within ourselves that we are experts, but then also getting it past our lips, right? And I'm going to say that out loud. I'm going to own that. And, you know, that's not humble. That's not all of these things. So what do you say to that? Yeah. So, you know, one thing that can be really helpful in terms of, like you said, the first part is getting it clear within ourselves. Like, what is my zone of joy? What is this uh, ability that I have that I'm so well practiced at that I can really make an impact and help others and make money while doing it? 
it can be very helpful to work with a coach to get to that point. Because as my business coach often says, you can't read the label from inside the bottle. And so it can be so valuable to work with someone who's outside of your head and can reflect back what they see and help you see yourself with new eyes. So that's thing one, right? And then I like how you put that, Shonda, like getting it past your own lips. Mm. Gosh. So I do work with, I mean, I work entirely with women at this time and we do have a lot of conversations about what's humble, what's modest, what's too much, what's kind of being too much or saying too much, you know, and who, you know, what are the criteria for making an assessment like that? You know, these are all judgments, right? Too much, too little, too humble, too modest, Mm -hmm. not humble enough, not modest enough. These are all judgments. And what I find if we can kind of step ourselves back from the um, emotion of that, that fear or anxiety that we're, you know, doing too much or bragging too much, when we can step back, I find it really powerful to ask who's telling me that whose voice is that that's Mm -hmm. telling me I'm not being humble by sharing what I know. Who's telling me that this strong opinion that I really believe and I'm afraid will ruffle some feathers is not a safe opinion or not a correct opinion to share. And I I had this back and forth with a client recently and her, and I asked her, I was like, whose voice is that? And immediately she said, it's my dad's. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she knows all of us, I think our inner wisdom will, will be quick to tell us if we listen where those messages are coming from. And then we have the choice. We have the opportunity to decide, do we agree with that message or no. And when I say it like this, I know it can, it sort of sounds like, oh, you just decide not to let it bother you, which is <laughs> my sweet dad would, when I was growing up would, would sometimes say things like, oh, just try not to let it bother you. I'd be right. like, dad, <laughs> if I could simply do that, I would have done that already. So I understand. Right. And there, you know, if, if there are a lot of mental health professionals are listening. So I know you're, you, I know you know this, mm-hmm. but, um, this is a process, and this is why with a lot of my thought leadership clients or the clients that I help with slow marketing, we start really gently. We build momentum over time, and that's an enormous uh, part of the philosophy that I, that I teach and that I work from, which is this idea of slow momentum mm-hmm. and really creating safety within yourself each step of the way. So maybe you start creating thought leadership in your journal, and that is a place where you can start practicing the principles and the practices of creating thought leadership. And once you grow more comfortable expressing yourself, you might take it to another, a little bit more public level and from there on so on and so forth. Awesome. Definitely. Yeah. And, and just confidence is what I'm hearing in there too. I mean, it's permission from ourselves and, you know, where awareness and then confidence. And I I love that sort of that slow because what we don't want and we know is, we can kind of overcorrect if we're trying to be confident, then we can be like too, you know, if we're trying to do it, then we might be too much because we're trying to sort of fake something that isn't, we want it to be slightly uncomfortable, not hugely uncomfortable because then we might not get it. You know, we might not do it very well. So, right. Yeah. 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 And I, you, I'm glad you brought up the word confident because it reminds me of a, an, an awakening I had about that word or that concept where I, for a long time thought that, once I feel confident, then I'll X, Y, Z. I'll start writing mm. my own thought leadership. I'll My company will grow faster. I'll ask for more money. I had this first come confidence, then comes action story I was telling myself until someone pointed out to me that you build confidence by doing the work first. That's right. And yes. as soon as I heard it, I was like, ah, of course. But it hadn't it hadn't clicked for me until someone really put it in those plain words. And, it, and I see you... Um, Shonda and I can see each other. I see you nodding along, Shonda. I wonder if you have your own experience like that or um, a story you can relate about that. Definitely. You know, because I think uh, 25 years ago, I was very more of the not very confident. I mean, maybe knew about my knowledge, my intelligence, but sort of thought leadership wise, you know, definitely not, not at all. And I would not be comfortable speaking about it or um, putting it out there. It was very much those action steps that, that, 
I had to push through being uncomfortable um, and just being scared and nervous and um, and just doing it. And then it just becomes so much easier. And now I love to talk about it. So as I think you do too. So um, yeah. yeah, so that definitely resonates. And, and again, I think uh, a lot of people who go into therapy, therapists, we're listeners, we are helpers, we are caregivers by nature. We're not out there kind of doing this, um, but we we need to be more, you know, and that's part of why we're here. So, so along these lines, you know, oh, confidence. Can I, share, can I share a story before we switch gears? Absolutely. This is a, a reframe that I find very helpful and a lot of my clients find helpful, which is, you know, sometimes when we, when we imagine thought leadership, we, what we make that mean in our minds is talking about ourselves, talking a lot, you know, it's not like, it's like us, 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 us. And of course, you know, really effective thought leadership isn't just the the Eva show or the Shonda show. It's doing so much more, telling stories, you know, providing information, education, entertainment. But what I find is a helpful reframe is to think about thought leadership as an act of service mm-hmm. rather than an act of self-aggrandizement or even an act of marketing. I think of it as when you are able to, you know, you caregivers, you helpers, you those who are providing really critical support to others that's a service. You know, that's a tremendous service. And you are providing that same kind of service by sharing your expertise and your insights and your wisdom in this other format. And so perhaps, you know, that reframe will be would be helpful for folks who might struggle with like feeling like they're talking too much or talking about themselves too much or promoting themselves too heavily. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, I think that's a great distinction um, in our minds. And also as we're, as we're out there, that this isn't all about, you know, trying to promote ourselves. It is, it is what our expertise, our knowledge, the, the, the helping information that we have and, and thought leadership helps us put it out there in a way to more of the masses than one-on-one. Um, and one-on-one has its components mm-hmm. that we cannot, you know, cannot replicate with a group or just putting it out there, there is that relationship. Of course, we all know that. Yet, um, not everyone is being reached one-on-one. So how do we reach all of the people out there who need to hear what we have to share and help them with? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Precisely. Okay. So let's talk about, um, you, you mentioned your magnetic thought leadership, and I love that. What are the five pillars that you teach or talk about within this um, methodology, if that's what it's, you refer to it as? Yeah, so I, I'd love to uh, just name the five pillars. You know, I could, I could go into detail about each one, and maybe we do want to do that, but I want to, I'll name the five pillars, and then I'd love to hear from you, Shonda, like, which ones are most, like, pique your interest the most, mm-hmm. and we can take it from there, unpacking these uh, to the extent that we want to. Okay. So the five pillars of magnetic thought leadership are your thought leadership can, to be unique, visionary, uh, trustworthy, relevant, and concise. Mm-hmm. Now, those oh. are all, like, words that can mean a lot of different things. So let me know what piques your interest and we can get into it. Well, I guess a couple of them. I mean, visionary piques my interest the most, I would say. Concise, I think, is the most challenging for me personally and I th- maybe for a lot of women so or people. So um, maybe let's hit on those two and see how else we, you know, how much time we have. So visionary. Yeah, absolutely. So visionary that's one of those, it's like, it's a big word, sort of like a, oh, shoot word. <laughs> uh, and I think uh, when we hear it, we can um, feel an immediate sense of pressure sometimes. And so I want to acknowledge that and to invite us and anyone listening to take a deep breath and let me share my perspective on what visionary means. So mm-hmm. when you are an expert, you know, you're an expert in your field, you have years of experience under your belt you get to a point where you see the world with a certain lens. You know, it's partly your unique experiences. It's partly your education, but you have a, a, a lens through it, you know, that filters your vision of the world, let's say. And so you have insights about uh, trends that are coming down the pike for your field or, um, patterns you're seeing among your clients, or even just a connection that you that is clear to you between your work and maybe something bigger going on in the world, 
these things, these connection points become clear to you in a way that someone without your experience and your, your, your way of being, those, they're not never going to see the connection the way you do. And so part of what makes magnetic thought leadership effective is for you to communicate that vision. And so not that you're you know, making predictions that you insist are going to come to pass like Nostradamus or something. <laughs> it's not that you are trying to force anything to come to be. Rather, you're sharing what you see. You're making, you're, you're helping to lead people towards a conclusion that you've made about the future, about the present and to the future. And so I like to think of being visionary as, you know, it's one part you have probably an inspirational vision of what you'd like to see the world to be that's probably closely tied to your, you know, kind of your, the mission of your work. So there's the aspirational, inspirational aspect of it. And then there's the practical, you see things, you see curves in the road, you see roadblocks, you see shortcuts that other people aren't privy to. Mm -hmm. And so it's marrying those two visions that you have and communicating them in your thought leadership to be of service to others, to help people make decisions, to help them chart their own path forward in a way that's informed by what you have to offer. Mm. Yeah. I, lo I love those explanations. And I guess I'm thinking about personally and, and can share my experience with some of that, that those connections might turned out to be my first book, which, you know, it's like, I was, um, yeah, breathe, mama, breathe. I was, I was uh, met a meditator, and then I was about to. I had a ten-year-old daughter about to have my son, and I knew I cannot meditate a half an hour a day when I have a newborn baby and everything else I'm trying to do. So I came up with these five-minute practices for myself and started teaching them to other women. Realized how much it resonated, and you know, kind of it was like putting this this experience as mindfulness meditation, mom therapist, putting it all together. And, um, you know, and, and then this book was born um, from blog posts. So I think that mm. might be a good example of what you're talking about. It definitely yes. wasn't something that I sat down. And I was like, okay, I am going to, you know, <laughs> I mean, at some point it all kind of coalesced and it, I was like, oh, this might be something here, but it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't this big aha moment um, in terms of like sort of this, I don't know, all at one time. It was just this evolution, right? This slow evolution of putting things together and making sense of things. And um, which makes me think of, as you're talking about all this, you know, is it, where does experimentation come in with all of this? Is that a big piece of what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll address that in one second, but I want to just highlight something you shared, Shonda, which is that the path is only obvious in hindsight. Right. Like it's not like you sat at your desk and were like, I'm going to do this now. Rather, you know, it came to you in small pieces and built momentum in a way that you probably didn't anticipate. And that organic evolution relates to what we talked about at the top of our interview with it, with niching down um, and with. Yeah, how your how your wisdom and your education and your evolution are always in process and. I think where experimentation comes into play is is always. I mean, you're you're a perfect example of that. You're like, I'm going to have a newborn. I can't do the 30 minutes. I'm going to experiment with other practices that help me reach my goals, but accommodate my life's circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very like real world example of you know you needed to experiment. And you know, on the more kind of thought leadership side, I I'm always encouraging myself and my clients to you know, push our own envelopes and how can we experiment sometimes with different forms of thought leadership, you know, what different ways that we're communicating our ideas, but also the ideas that we dare to communicate and experimenting with, you know, saying something that might make us a little bit uncomfortable to push our comfort edge a little bit. So yeah, you know, what, what is that phrase? Necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. So certainly call sometimes you have to... It was survival, yes. <laughs> Let's be clear. <laughs> yeah, so survival is the mother of invention. So right, sometimes your life is like, well, here's an opportunity for you, Shonda. And other times you might make you might sit down and make the decision to experiment with something. But either way is is welcome and only going to enhance, I think, your ability to be an effective thought leader. Mm, right. 
And I'm so as as I'm talking to you about this, you know, and and just knowing your work from outside of what we're talking about today and following you, uh, where do values come in? Because I think what's so beautiful and I appreciate about your work and anybody who you know starts following you, which I highly recommend they do, is it's clear that you follow your values. Um, it just it just comes through so beautifully and so simply. And and maybe that's the concise piece that I want to go back to too. I don't know if you're ready to move off of visionary or not, but, but um, where, you know, I'm assuming there's some consciousness, clear consciousness about your values and, and how to use that. Yeah, there's a, there's a thread coming through this conversation we're having right now, which is a thread that's coming, that comes through with my entrepreneurial journey as well, which is there have been so many times where I really harshly second-guessed myself and and really felt like I should be doing things in a certain order and I should be following a certain process. And I have very seldom, very seldom have these kind of external processes or advice that, you know, quote unquote, good advice that I was receiving. Very seldom has it felt aligned and right and appealing to me. Mm. So one example is the advice to choose your niche. And that was just like, I can't just pick it. It needs to come to me. And I was like, I should, but I should know what it is. I should be able to pick it. And similarly, you know, with, with my values, you know, I felt like, well, if I'm going to build a website, I have first have to decide what my values are and just pick what they are and articulate them beautifully right out of the gate. And there, I could I could name numerous more examples of how what has felt most right to me is letting things unfold slowly mm. and reveal themselves to me, kind of excavate themselves, rather than needing to fit things into certain containers or certain boxes from the outset. Mm. And this has been challenging because the advice that we're bombarded with is very uh, linear. It's like, you have to do this and then you got to figure out this and here's a free PDF to do that. And then you do this. Mm-hmm. And it can, it, for me at least, and I started my company when I was 25 and I was coming out of a really, really tough corporate job that had imploded in a way. And I was just, I, I stuck my butt right into therapy. In fact, because I was, my mental health was not, was not at its strongest point. And so I was starting my business from a very insecure uncertain place. And mm. so I found I found that trying to follow this advice that felt so incongruent with my inner wisdom, not that I knew to call it that then, but that that was really challenging. And I can perpetually felt like I was doing it wrong. Mm. So now uh, that's a long answer to your question about values, which is that I have made a concerted effort, not because I sit down and did that, but over time of like, Delayering all the ways in which I was second guessing myself and holding myself up to this external made up criteria, I've gotten to the point where I'm much more comfortable and clear now on what an aligned decision feels like mm. and what my values feel like in action. And even to this day, I mean, I could probably rattle off what my values are to you now in a very sloppy way. I still haven't sat down and chosen to articulate them. I feel that they, I feel that they are there. Mm-hmm. And I could probably do that if I tried or wanted yep. to. But yep. for now, I'm content to act on my values without without precisely knowing what I've decided to call them. Yeah. By just recognizing that felt sense in your body. And and therapists who are listening will, will resonate or will kind of make this connection with acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT therapy, which is very values-based. And it's sort of like mm. we teach our clients values and then that that felt sense of I'm off track, I'm on track, I'm off track. And and I think it's it's like I guess what I'm hearing, and I don't know if you would agree with this, is this experimentation again. Like we can't, you know, you can sit down for five years and wait and kind of like then come out and decide five years later what your niche is and what your values are or whatever. Um, but you really can't figure it out too. It's so much, it's messy and uncomfortable and we get it wrong sometimes, but um, we have to kind of experiment to get to land on what feels right and what doesn't feel right. Um, otherwise, I'm not sure how we know. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. And I think I like what, how you put it, that felt sense. And nowadays, there's nothing more important to me than that internal compass. Mm. And I just really cherish that entrepreneurship has given me or forced me the opportunity 
to hone and tune that felt sense and yeah, learn to make decisions from that place and to trust them and to let things unfold the way that they do rather than force them. And, and I think a lot of what you're describing is, you know, for me, my experience has been, it's all very internally gener- generated and sometimes it's externally recognized. Like it can be really helpful to have someone outside me say, oh, I would, I would put it in these terms or, oh, I think you're really good at this thing. And that helps me recognize what to call it. But that felt inner felt sense and using that as my compass has been such a gift and such a growth edge. Boy, howdy <laughs> as an entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's that's the thing is is when you you know when you read your work or even just the the email blasts the emails that you put out, um, it is magnetic because it's you and it's very, your voice is very clear. You're clear, and you're not trying to be someone else or do it in a formulaic way. Um, and that's obvious. And so that's you know that's kind of what we're going for. But it, again, we don't. It takes time to figure out what that looks like for each of us. Um, and sometimes yeah. we have to adopt other people's methods or plans or ways of doing it till we realize, nope, not for me. Yes, for me, this piece might be for me. I can adopt this and so forth. So great. Totally. Okay. So can we, can we move a little bit? Maybe we'll come back to the pillars, but I want to make sure we get to some practical things too, in terms, not that that's not practical, but they're more, um, you know, frameworks, but Talking yeah. specifics for, for therapists who are sitting here going, okay, this all sounds amazing. Like, let's dive into building an email list or, you know, what are some things that we really need to focus on if I'm going to play around with a niche and say, I'm going to try this, you know, or this feels right. Let me s- experiment with this niche. How do I build an email list and what else might I focus on? So I am team email list all day, every day. And that is because one, you know, I always encourage my clients to never do anything you hate. And, you know, again, this is a theme, you know, we get so much unsolicited advice. I think women in particular, but anyone who uses the internet is bombarded with unsolicited advice about how to market, how to generate leads, how to this, how to that. And if we don't have a strong um, felt sense of, of yes or no, that advice can be extremely disorienting and uncomfortable to experience. And overwhelming, like so, all the things. Oh, gosh, so overwhelming. And yeah. so, you know, I want to preface my advice to build an email list with a large grain of salt, which is that if you are not an email person yourself, if you don't like reading emails, if you don't like, if you prefer to listen to podcasts or watch videos, if you hate writing, you don't have to do what I say, but let me explain <laughs> why I'm team email list. So what I think is so um, irreplaceable about build, building an email list is it's the only or one of the few mediums of communication where you have direct access to someone's contact information, i.e. their email address. So you could build an enormous podcast following, an enormous Instagram following, or an, a huge LinkedIn connection base. That's great. And I think you should if you want to. And you do not have ownership over that contact information, right? Like Mark Zuckerberg owns it or somebody else owns it. So in terms of an asset for the longevity of your business, having an email community where you've got access to the inboxes, maybe you sometimes get people's mailing addresses if you like to send things in the mail or phone numbers if you like to do texting, text-based communication. There's lots of other ways to go about it, but email, I mean, there's something intimate about somebody's inbox and, and I really cherish that. And as a avid reader and writer, it's a really well-suited communication form for me. And I identify as an introverted, highly sensitive, empathic person. And that and the other things about me make writing a prime way to communicate my thought leadership. So I guess to summarize what I've just said, on the one hand, you want to consider what you enjoy doing. And if that's email, then great. You also want to consider what's an asset to my company, to my business, to my, that I can 
have direct access to the people who are who are opting to hear in to hear from me, right? They're they're raising their hand by subscribing to my list and saying, "Yes, please stay in touch with me." And, you know, if if you're into the former, but you're not too keen on the or you're into the latter, but you're not too keen on the former, you're not into writing, there are other ways you can use an email list that don't require you to do something that feels like rubbing your forehead against a cheese grater, right? Like you can use an email list to do more update style, to share resources, to even just share inspirational quotes and beautiful imagery. So there are multiple ways you can communicate via an email list that don't require you to write long emails. Right. Or even have video or or video, podcast, YouTube, something that you can just say, hey, this is what it's about. Go check it out. Right. I mean, it's still that communication. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about your roundtables? Because I think, um, I, I love that. And I think it's, it, you know, it might resonate a lot with therapists who tend to be, again, more, we tend to be more listeners, introverts, not into like going to networking events where we have to just do small talk with 200 people. <laughs> so yeah. tell us about that. Yeah. So I love to talk about my roundtable strategy and it's actually how you and I first connected Shonda. So it's like special to us personally. And I started the roundtable series, which I will describe in a moment because I had never met a networking opportunity that I liked. Mm-hmm. And I, I am introverted, but I'm also very outgoing. I love meeting new people, making new connections, but I felt like my opportunities were either go to a happy hour where it's crowded, dark, loud and when I'm lowest energy at night Mm. or like go to a luncheon where I'm like seated between two people and trying to eat a salad and trying to listen or go to a zoom thing where there's a gazillion people and the chat's going nuts. I have to just correct myself. I'm trying not to use um, ableist language, right? Nuts has some implications about mental illness. So I apologize for using that word. But the Zoom's moving super, the Zoom chat's moving super quickly. It's hard to get your bearings. It's hard to feel connected. And so while I love meeting people, I recognized I most enjoy connecting in an intimate way where you can relax, you can hear each other, you can get into deep topics if you want to. No one's going to confront you with the, so what do you do question that you're expected to elevator pitch respond to, which always makes me really unenthusiastic. So I was like, I like to meet people. I don't like these big situations. What What's the gap? Like there is a gap here for people mm-hmm. like me. And so I was invited to a round table by my colleague, Aisha Cogborn, where it was a small community. There were three of us. And she had some slides with some simple questions that we took turns answering. And it was 90 minutes. And I was very skeptical. I was like, I don't know if I want to spend 90 minutes on Zoom with some strangers, (laughs) but I knew I trusted Aisha. So I signed up and it was fantastic. I felt so comfortable, felt like I could really listen and share and learn about people in an intimate way, but it was more, more communal than just having a one-on-one conversation, which can be kind of hit or miss. You don't always have chemistry and it can be hard to steer the conversation So I thought, oh, this is perfect. This is the perfect medium between a one-on-one, which is not leveraged and can be very draining and hit or miss, and an enormous impersonal gathering. Mm. So I started hosting my own. And so I host them just about every week. They're invitation only. I do charge for them. At first, I offered them for free, but now I do charge to join a roundtable. It's a one-time commitment. And you're going to chat with me and three other women entrepreneurs never larger than five. I've never gone larger than five people total. And it's a 90 minute loosely structured and spontaneous conversations. There's enough structure that everyone gets a turn to speak. So nobody kind of dominates the conversation and we keep the conversation moving forward with the questions, but it's not so structured that there's not room for people to comment on things or ask clarifying questions or for spontaneous, you know, topics to come to the fore. And I've been running this series for more than two years now, and I get such glowing feedback from women who participate. Almost all of them fill up right away. And so I know, I knew pretty quickly that like, this was something special. This was really meeting a need in the marketplace. 
And it wasn't until I came across some research by a woman named Shelley E. Taylor and her colleagues that I really pinpointed like, what about this is so freaking special? Why do people like this so much? It's like so Mm -hmm. simple, but it's so profound. Mm -hmm. And her research, this team's research found that women have an additional behavioral response to stress. So yeah, there's the three F's of fight, flight, or freeze. And this, and Taylor's research found that in addition, women exhibit this behavior that she calls tend and befriend. Mm, yes. Which involves engaging in protective, nurturing activities and relying on social Im- networks to help us feel nurtured and protected. And I thought, aha. Mm-hmm. And when you when I first read that research, I thought, oh, it means like, you know, like you and your besties getting together. But what the roundtables have shown me is that you can experience this nurturing, protective space with a small group of strangers. Mm, yep. And so that is really what the round table, I think that's, you know, in addition to the opportunity to network with a couple of new women and have good conversations that are thought provoking, I think part of what makes these so popular and so resonant is this nurturing and protective intimate and confidential feeling that we get from spending 90 minutes in a small micro community. Right, right. And I think this is a great example that your roundtables are a great example of your magnetic thought leadership, right? Which is, you know, you take all of these pieces, things that weren't working for you personally, needs you saw, and kind of bringing this all together in a way that fits. And um, and I think it, it would be a an amazing uh, way for therapists to start to experiment with their thought leadership because we are natural. We, we learn how to create this space, this safe space, make it, you know, you know, create a vulnerable where we can be vulnerable. We are used to obviously not just the small talk. Um, we're comfortable with all of this. And so yeah. guiding conversation groups, sometimes we're very comfortable with. So um, I think we're natural. It would be a natural fit for a lot of therapists. Um, so, any other pointers, a couple of pointers about, you know, how a therapist or a mental health professional might go about starting that? I know you offer courses sometimes or webinars or, right? Yeah, yeah. So I have two answers. Um, one is, well, I don't even need to overview them. I'll just tell you what they are. So on the <laughs> one hand, I do teach my roundtable strategy in my micro marketing method program. So I call the program MX3 for short. And I teach there the roundtable strategy, my uh, really effective and nimble LinkedIn strategies, as well as my proven technique for pitching yourself to podcasts. And the proof is in the pudding of the fact that I'm here on Shonda's podcast. So that's how you know it works. That's great. And uh, so the so one way to, to learn how to leverage these strategies is to come work with me in MX3. But regardless of that, thinking about how therapists in particular can use roundtables, I would invite you to consider, you know, one of the most powerful benefits for me of the roundtables has been the networking aspect. So when I extend invitations or I, or I ask for for referrals to my roundtables, I'm always asking for women entrepreneurs because that is who I serve. And when, and I, you know, I work business to business. I'm in, I'm in B2B. Now, if you're a therapist and you're typically doing B2C, you know, business to consumer or client or patient, the dynamic there for networking and for your client relationships is a little bit different. So I would invite therapists to think about what are other professionals whose audiences are likely to seek therapy, who are likely to want to have a therapist in their Rolodex to refer. So one example could be divorce, divorce lawyers. Mm. One example could be financial advisors. One example could be social workers. I know the social workers are sometimes also therapists, but perhaps a social worker in a different context might need a therapist in their Rolodex to refer clients to. Mm-hmm. So, so bringing in your, you were your to, networking, you, the, the people you want, you want to as your um, business network with. Yeah, so I would invite you to consider other professionals whose audiences overlap with yours. So if you serve a certain kind of client as a therapist, you know, probably other professionals serve that same type of client and you could, 
but in a different way, right? So you have overlapping audiences. And I think it'd be very powerful to use roundtables to slowly but surely build your network of referral partners because people Mm. always want to be able to make a really heartfelt referral. And what I find has been really powerful about roundtables is after somebody hangs out with me for 90 minutes and we have this tend and befriend, intimate, confidential, close discussion, they're a zillion times more likely to remember who I am, what I do, and to think of me for referral if someone needs my services. Definitely. Yes. Love that. Okay. Much more likely, I would argue, than, you know, somebody you talk to for four minutes at a happy hour. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Because you've gotten to know them as a person on a deeper level. And I mean, yes, obviously. Yeah. Great. Anything else about that or should we move on? I'll just reiterate just how much I freaking love round tables. They're so great. I just had one yesterday and they just, they're one of the, my favorite things I do. I find them so energizing, which is not yeah. as an introverted person, not always a word I would readily associate with networking, right? So to have yes. a networking outlet that is energizing and does fill me up yes. and gives me ideas is such a gift. Yes. And I agree. And I think, I think there are a lot of therapists who are extroverted introverts. So, and I'm one too, like, sounds like maybe you are, which is, I love to meet people. I love to, but I don't want to talk about the weather at least for very long. So yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. So let's move on to, if it's okay, um, slow marketing and social media monogamy. These are two of your, um, Ooh, and she's getting excited. Okay. (laughs) Let's tell us about what this is and how uh, mental health professionals might use some of your tips. Yes. So slow marketing is, you know, apropos of some of the things we've talked about today, Shonda, like sometimes, you know, you're doing something for a while and you don't have the words for it until you do. And I have been practicing slow marketing for myself and my private clients for years. And it wasn't until recently that I recognized that slow marketing is a really resonant title for these principles and this like philosophy of marketing. Mm. And I realized it actually through experimentation. I sent an email to my email list about the concept. I posted about it on social. And by social, I mean specifically LinkedIn, which I'll return to in a minute. And I got Mm. a lot of feedback. People were like really excited about these two words paired together. And I think it's because it's such a welcome antidote to the capitalistic, bigger, more, better, faster rhetoric and energy that we're totally bombarded with in our culture. Mm -hmm. And so this is, um, you know, calling it this is kind of new for me, but practicing it has, I've been wending my way toward that for a long time as that, as I tune into that right feeling inside me. So some of the principles of slow marketing include um, intimacy, which we've already touched on a few times. Mm-hmm. one-on-one connections or or more broadly just connections that facilitate intimacy such as roundtables. Mm. Another principle is what I call uh, social media monogamy, which is exactly what it sounds like. You choose one social media network and devote all of your kind of social media energy to being excellent in that one place rather than being mm. medium on multiple different networks. And this, you know, some people really don't agree with this philosophy. They're really, they're like, okay, I get what you're saying, but I want to use Instagram and LinkedIn. And I think that's wonderful. It's the right strategy for you if it resonates with you. And it really does with me. So I only use LinkedIn professionally mm-hmm. and really mm-hmm. at all. I hardly use social personally. Um, so yeah, intimacy. And then they also, so we talk about intimacy, uh, social media monogamy, leveraging one-on-one conversations and relationships. Like this is very relationship focused. And then the other thing too, is I really want to encourage us to embrace slow growth. And I'm one email I'm thinking about sending to my list soon is to solicit slow brags, like ask people to show off about the things that it took them a long time to do. (laughs) That's awesome. I love that. You know, you listeners can probably relate, you know, it's like people you'll probably, you'll see entrepreneurs talking about hitting seven figures in three years or hitting six figures in six months or hitting this many followers in this amount of time. And I don't want to detract from those achievements, but I also find that hearing only that kind of achievement 
has really made me question my way of doing things, which is much more methodical and slow and diligent. And so like I was saying at the beginning of the call with, you know, evening the scales of authority figures, right? Rather than having 99% of authority figures be men, let's try to meet in the middle. And I think here as well, rather than all of the examples of success we're showing being overnight success, rags to riches, huge numbers, let's meet in the middle of sometimes that and sometimes a really slow growth approach where that where the whole process was experimental and yummy and felt aligned and comfortable and exciting, not overly comfortable, but challenging in an, in an exciting mm-hmm. way. And yeah. so I'm still kind of fine tuning the, the rhetoric of slow marketing, but those are some of the principles that are very near and dear to me and that I'm really excited to, to start sharing more widely. Mm, I like that. And and I guess what's coming up for me is what would you say to the people, <clears throat> not speaking personally or anything, that um, are very impatient and are kind of like, yeah, but I want my answers now. Like I not not necessarily, you know, need, a, you know, 10,000 followers, but meaning like I want to figure this out. I want to figure out my niche now. I want to like I'm very impatient and I could get very frustrated with myself because I'm just like, what is your problem? <laughs> Yeah. So it's, that's a great question. And I relate to that. I'm also not terribly patient. And I would ask you, and you can answer now, or you can just marinate on it, but I would ask you, who's telling you, whose story is it? Whose voice is it that says you need this faster? You need this now? Yeah. And it's not a should. It's not like, this is how it's, it's, it's me. It's me. Like, I want to figure this out. I'm annoyed. I'm, you know, so there's some judgment. Sure. But also, you know, there's this, uh, I, I don't know what else to call it, but impatience with my, with the process, not even, I mean, partially with myself, but partially the process of just like, um, just wanting the answers, you know, it's not, I don't think it's yeah. anybody else's voice. Yeah. So that's a good point. And I think for me, rather than it being an, a certain individual's voice, I do think for me, it's the voice of like the peanut gallery. It's like, it's sort of like the combined voices of everyone I've ever seen on Instagram, so to speak. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I, I compare this to like when I was in high school, I knew that it would take me four years to finish high school. And I felt no sense of impatience to like be a senior sooner than it was time for me to be a senior. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think part of what we face with impatience is, is what are our expectations and why are these our expectations? And some, Mm. you know, in some arenas, the expectations are very clear and we never question them. And in other arenas, the expectations are much more varied. And so there's a lot of room to be like, well, why isn't it, why isn't it happening faster for me? It happened faster for her. Instagram said so. So therefore, yeah. And so for me, some of the threads include comparison-itis comes into play here. And, and, you know, it's a little bit of human nature too, which is like instant gratification is a different yummy experience than delayed gratification. They're not, it's not like one's better or worse, but they are different and they're both appealing. And so it can be hard to kind of straddle a line between like, it'd be fun to have this now. And I know it's gonna be fun to have it later, but now is now. (laughs) And so I want to feel good now. And with our culture, there's far more examples in our faces of now. You know, you can order toothbrushes from Jeff Bozos and get them at your house within the day. So we don't have a lot of, we don't have as much practice waiting for things. And I had a great conversation with some colleagues in the coaching community I belong to about waiting and patience. And I, we talked about defining patience which some of us were like, we're like, I don't like to be patient because it feels passive. And we defined it as mm. active waiting. And, mm-hmm. to, and, and to me, what comes through there is this idea of trust. It's like, I'm putting in the work, I'm taking the action, and I trust that results are coming. And I'm actively waiting for those results. I'm not sitting on my couch, like drumming my fingers. I'm continuing to do things that are congruent and aligned and it's important to me. And I'm trusting that the foundations I'm laying now are going to pay dividends down the line. Nice. Yeah. I like all of those answers and they're all 
yeses. Uh, I'm there. I'm feeling a lot of what you're agreeing with what a lot you were saying for me personally as well. And I think um, what I might add is this idea of that it can feel. It doesn't always feel yummy. It feels uncomfortable and messy and confusing and, you know, frustrating. And so, and I talk about the U-shaped curve. I don't know if Adam Grant, if you know his work with, he talks about um, the beginning, you know, any creative project. Okay. So any creative project we start out and it's kind of like, this is awesome. I got this great idea. Wow. Yeah. And then you start working on it and you're like, oh, I don't know this. I don't know about this. Then you get to the bottom, you're like, this is crap. I'm crap. I don't even, what is this? And then, but if you keep going and taking that action that feels so not right on and kind of messy and not sure, then you start to come up the other side of the U-shaped curve and you're like, wait a minute, this might be okay. Wait, I'm okay. Then back to this is awesome. But, and that's been my experience for sure with any big creative project I take on. It's like, I always hit that bottom and I don't, even though I've done it so many times, I still don't even recognize sometimes when I'm starting to get in it because it's just, I don't want it. I don't want it. <laughs> I want to resist it. Um, but I think if we, I always say, if we, you know, we can expect it, that it's going to show up, then we can kind of be ready for it. And like, okay, it's part of it. It's part of the process, part of this, this um, slow, slow marketing that you're talking about, right? It's all because again, like you said uh, earlier in the conversation, it's like in retrospect, I can say, oh, look at my path. Look at my beautiful path I was on. That, that all made sense. Mm-hmm. But at the time, you're like, what am I doing? <laughs> So that it's going to feel that way well, and normalizing that. Normalizing that is key. And and you make such a good point. Like if you have the expectation of the U shape, then you can practice recognizing where you are in it. And and because I think what can be so confusing is when we're at the bottom of the U, it feels bad. And our brain's like, that must mean it is bad. That must mean you're doing something mm-hmm. wrong. You got to change it. You got to fix it. But if you learn to expect it to feel bad sometimes in that very particular way, then you can learn to see that experience not as a red light, but as a green light. And you, yep. it's becomes, it becomes a confirmation or an affirmation that you're in the right place. You're, you're doing all the right things. And I think that kind of expectation setting is so important because like you said, like I would prefer for everything to be fun all the time. Right. And there's a part of me that does expect that. And I think yes. uh, social media feeds into that. I think um, some of the stories that we see in our culture feed into that. We don't always pull back the curtain on the on the bottom of the U. And so that's another aspect I want to explore in slow marketing is like really almost like celebrating the bottom of the U because it is. Mm. And I and I think of the, her- the heroine's journey um, concept of like going down into – I forget what the base like. I, I forget what the um, metaphor is, but basically, you ha- the dark night of the soul, mm. and you have that. Yeah. That's part of the heroine's journey. And yeah. when we have that expectation, how much more compassionate can we be with ourselves and and honestly patient when we inevitably reach that point? Yeah, and hopefully we're you know using this tendon befriend to have our little community or community that we can support one another when we see each other in those places because like you said initially too, it's, you know, a coach or a mentor or um, colleagues that can help us see that. That's where we are when we can't always recognize it and remind us, you know, how far we've come or what we're still, you know, working on. So, so we are out of time and I would love to keep talking with you. So um, I am sure that you've piqued interest and really got everyone listening, uh, thinking about how they can use some of these and, and that they, you know, everyone can do this, right? I mean, it's just about being brave enough and, you know, to just get started and experiment. Um, and where can listeners find out more about you? We'll certainly put it in the show notes, but let's tell them too. Yeah. So the best place to connect with me is either on LinkedIn as a social media monogamist, you can only (laughs) ever find me there. And I think I'm the only person with my spelling of my last name, uh, first and last name. So two N's, two T's, you can find me on LinkedIn, send me a connection request and let me know you heard me here first. And secondly, as I, now that I've waxed eloquent about how much I love email, I'd love to see you in my email list. It's my favorite way of staying in touch with people. And so you can go to five magneticpillars.com, number five magneticpillars.com to get a short free email course about the rest of those pillars that we started discussing. And that will also subscribe you to my list where you'll get updates from me with my freshest, fiercest, goofiest 
thought leadership. (laughs) But always creative and smart for sure. So thank you so much, Eva, for being with us. Uh, It was a pleasure and I'm sure everyone will be checking you out. Thank you, Shonda. This was fun. If you listen to the podcast and you would like to obtain continuing education credit hours from NBCC, please check out our website at therapeuticperspective.com. You will first need to click on the show that you just listened to, then the take this course button. From there, you will complete the payment process and attest that you listen to the show in its entirety. After the payment is processed, you will take a 10 question quiz followed by an evaluation so that we can better serve you. After these steps are complete, you will be given your certificate, which can be printed or stored on your therapeuticperspective.com account. If you need any help or support in the process, please email us at therapeuticperspectivepodcast at gmail.com. 